Hello and welcome to The Enemies of Rome. Today's episode will be a little different, because the enemy we're talking about is not a political leader or a general or some massive personality force. The enemy we're talking about is Archimedes. He was a polymath and a scientist and an inventor and a very different kind of enemy than Rome had seen before. He was born in Syracuse, which was kind of an Athens of the Italian peninsula. He might have been related to King Hiero II, who we're going to talk about in a couple episodes. He was the former ruler of Syracuse, and he kept Rome from really conquering the whole island. Syracuse is on the island of Sicily, Syracuse, on the eastern coast. And he'd been a good friend to Rome during the First Punic War. But Archimedes was a bit different. Most of his achievements throughout his life were creations that were done to help the city of Syracuse, especially in warfare. A lot of his most famous stuff was engineering. But he is someone who touches a lot of different areas of study. If you've ever taken physics, you might have heard of the Archimedes principle. The story goes like this. The king of Syracuse, not Hiero, but Hiero's successor, gave a whole bunch of gold to a metalsmith. And he said, make me a fantastic crown. And the goldsmith returned the crown to the king. And he said, here you go, king. Here is your wonderful crown. And the king looked at this crown. And he was a suspicious man because kings tend to succeed by being suspicious. And he turned to Archimedes and he said, I have no idea if this is fully gold. I want to know the percentage of this that is gold, but I don't want to damage it in any way. I don't want to cut it in half to see if it's simply gold-plated or to melt it down and measure the volume. Now, Archimedes knew enough to know that gold is a very dense metal and that the ratio of weight to volume will be especially high for gold compared to most other metals, including silver or iron. Gold is just very heavy. But the question is how to measure the volume of a crown, because a crown is a really weird shape. It's not something that you can calculate geometrically. It's not a, it's not a cylinder. It's not even a hollowed out cylinder. It has all kinds of points and ends and protuberances. It would have been impossible to calculate the volume of the crown without melting it down. Until one day that Archimedes was taking a bath. And he laid himself down in the bath, getting into the water, and noticing how the water level rose and sloshed over the sides of the bath. And he thought about that. He thought about putting himself in water and how that increased the water level. And he realized that water will displace the volume of whatever you put into it. The water level rose commensurate with the amount of Archimedes that went into the bath. If you put a crown in a big cup of water with measurements along the side that say centimeters cubed, you can know how much volume the crown has because it will displace that much water. He was so excited about this idea that he ran naked through the streets shouting Eureka. This is the origin of that image, the idea of the Greek philosopher who's so excited by his idea that he runs naked from the bath shouting Eureka. 
Archimedes was the man who birthed that story. But Archimedes' first love was not these principles. It was pure mathematics. Plutarch described this when he said that his whole affection and ambition was in those pure speculations where there can be no reference to the vulgar needs of life. In other words, he was really interested in math that had no application. You'll still find this today at universities. There's plenty of math people who really hate the idea of their perfect formulas ever having to be applied anywhere. They study things like number theory, but every single time they study something that they think will have no application, there winds up being a new application. With number theory, I think it's mostly encryption. But Archimedes studied limits. He birthed an idea that is astonishingly similar to modern calculus. Modern calculus, if you've ever taken a, a Calc 101 class, will start with this idea called limits. And Archimedes came to this idea long before Newton or Leibniz. He used the principle of reductio ad absurdum, which is basically creating a smaller and smaller range that the answer wasn't until he had a range for what the answer likely was. So if you took a circle and you drew a square where the circle intersected with the midpoint of every side, and then you took that same circle and drew a square where the circle intersected with every corner, one of those squares would be completely contained within the circle, and the other square would completely contain the circle. So the area of the circle is between those two squares. Now, Archimedes kept doing this with more and more complex now, Archimedes kept doing this with polygons that had more and more sides. Hexagons, octagons, decagons, all the way up to, I think, 19 sides was where he arrived at. And this got him an area of a circle. And from that, he could derive pi. This is one of the more accurate early derivations that we have of pi. He figured out that pi was between 3 and 1 seventh, and 3 and 1071s, which basically gets you to 3.14. And he also derived pi r squared, obviously, if he's calculating pi from the surface area of a circle. And he derived pi r squared, obviously, if he's calculating pi from the area of a circle. Now, he used the same principle, reductio ad absurdum, to calculate the area under a parabola which is basically the thing that every Calc 101 student starts doing when you learn bounded intervals. That's what you're calculating, areas under parabolas. He expressed the answer as a geometric series. He also had some proofs about spheres and cylinders, some 3D stuff. Now, this is one of his favorite proofs. It was carved into his tomb, but the tomb is lost now. This basically proved that a sphere and a cylinder where the cylinder's height is the same as the diameter of the sphere and the diameter of the cylinder, will have a ratio of both surface area and volume of two-thirds. This is something that he proved, that he completely derived. So he had a lot of these pure math things going for him. But, as I said, most of his inventions that we know and remember today are around engineering projects that were designed to help Syracuse. One of the first of these
project that was designed to help Syracuse. It was called Archimedes Screw. This was something that was used to bail water out of a ship. Syracuse built this massive ship, but it was such a large ship that it couldn't join all the planks of wood together really properly, and it wound up leaking a lot of water. And the question was how to get all of this water from out of the bottom of the hull and prevent the ship from sinking. So he built this screw-shaped blade into a cylinder. So he put this screw-shaped blade in the cylinder, and you would turn the screw inside of the cylinder, and it would pump the water up and out of the hull and prevent the leaks from getting too bad. The first sea ship that traveled the ocean was named the SS Archimedes because of this discovery. Something else that he built was called the Claw of Archimedes. This was something that was used for naval warfare. And it was kind of like a crane mixed with the claw game that you'll see in bowling alleys or any cheap arcade. And it was this massive crane claw that was attached to land. And whenever a ship approached, the claw would descend and grab the ship and lift it out of the water until eventually, like every claw game you've ever played, the ship fell out of the claw and it would just fall into the water and capsize or completely break apart. Something else he made was a heat ray. This is probably one of the most notorious things that he has made. It gets a lot of attention because people like to make experiments to prove or disprove that it could have existed. Plus, we don't really have laser weapons now, and the idea that Archimedes might have come up with some ancient technology to make lasers seems very exciting. Most ideas around this sort of pitch it as a bunch of parabolic mirrors that were set up on land and then focused on a specific point. There have been a couple of experiments to try and prove or disprove it. It seems hard to be able to target any position on a ship consistently. It's like trying to set paper on fire with a magnifying glass. The most important part is that you keep hitting the same spot on the paper. If the paper was 100 feet away and constantly moving because the ocean moved up and down, it would make it a lot harder. People have done it with stationary objects. They've been able to set some wood and some sails on fire, some fabric on fire, but it seems unlikely out in the ocean. But in general, people think that if the goal was to set the ship on fire, it's probably a better idea just to shoot it with some flaming arrows. But the idea was strong. And it survived. And it was a persistent legend that even people like Rene Descartes had to say, that probably didn't happen. And then there are levers. Now, he didn't invent them, but he described the principles very well, and he was kind of obsessed with them. And he's the one who said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world, which has become kind of an inspirational quote for a lot of people, a representation of the ability of human beings to do anything. He also might have constructed a planetarium, a model of the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. It was geocentric, with the Earth being at the center and the Sun and the Moon orbiting around it, but the ratio of Sun-to-Moon cycles were completely accurate. And one of the most interesting pieces about this is the complex knowledge of gears that it would require. And gears are really fascinating. If you guys ever want to get into something that's really interesting, look into Gears. The Gears Wikipedia page is kind of incredible. 
So most of these engineering things that I have described were used to help defend Syracuse during the siege of Syracuse. I mentioned earlier that King Hiero wasn't the king, but his grandson was, and he had ascended to the throne, and he had come under the sway of an anti-Roman faction. King Hiero had been a friend of the Romans. So they eventually pushed the new king to break with Rome. This is all during the height of the Second Punic War, and the city was able to hold off Rome for months, both because Rome was pretty distracted with some other important people, some other enemies, and because of these devices that Archimedes had dreamed up. It's really frustrated Rome and forced a stalemate, but eventually Syracuse became a little too overconfident, and Rome, for their overconfidence, was also always pretty determined. The Syracusans celebrated a festival, and the Romans got intelligence that they were going to be doing this, and they took advantage of it and took the city. They attacked during the festival, and they were successful. And as they were marching around, garrisoning the city and changing things and looting and pillaging, some soldiers demanded that Archimedes come with them to see the Roman commander. And he said, no, I'm working right now, and was slain on the spot. Much to the chagrin of the man who actually took the city, he wanted to use Archimedes to create some of these inventions for Rome. Who knows if he ever would have. Apparently, his last words to the Roman soldiers were, do not disturb my circles. And they did disturb his circles pretty bad. Archimedes is caught a little bit. Sometimes when we think about greatness, and especially when they thought about greatness in most parts of the ancient world, places in Greece being sort of exceptions, they thought of great political and military leaders. Now, Archimedes is someone who we still have a lot of respect for today. He was widely admired by Galileo and Leibniz. He has his picture on the Fields Medal, which is kind of like the Nobel Prize in mathematics. Eureka is still an exclamation that breeds excitement, reminds people of possibilities and discoveries. His legacy is far richer than Rome's last enemy, Pyrrhus of Epirus. But he had none of the power. Just a lot of brains. And it really was that power that ended him. He was caught between the rock and the hard place of Rome's expansionism. Rome was good at snuffing people out. There's not a lot of scientists that we remember from the Roman Empire. Thank you very much, and I hope each of you can forgive your enemies, but not forget their names. <laughs>